Hopefully you feel the same. If you don't, I'm so sorry. Uh, hope you had a good time last week, though, with Peter Lord. Hopefully he brought a little class to the regular joker you have up here on Wednesday night. Uh, last Wednesday night, I knew he was coming to speak. Last Wednesday night was my wife's birthday. And so we decided we would do something for her birthday. And you know there are certain things in life that tell you kind of like how old you are and how long you've been married. You know, like... Things like, you know you've been married a long time when, when your idea of a great evening is she gets in her chair and you get in your chair and you both read or watch whatever you want and you don't have to talk to anybody and it's still a good evening, right? That's when you know you've been married for a while. Uh, well, I won't tell you how old she was, but I'm 59 and she's just about a week away from me, so I didn't tell you how old she was, all right? Just... Just. So we went out for her birthday, and, and we, here's how we celebrated. We went and had a burger at Farmhouse Burger, and then we wandered around Costco. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, we have been married too long, too long. We'll have been married uh, 38 years, actually, in... Actually, it'll be, yeah, it's a testament to her perseverance is what it is. Uh, actually, it'll be, yeah, it will be 38 in June, in May 31st. So, uh, so we, that's where we were at. We were wandering around Costco while you guys were getting great Bible teaching, and, uh, which would have been okay, but it just cost me an arm and a leg every time I go in there. So, All right, we have two books to cover in Old Testament. Last two books, yes. No, although we did buy flowers, or she bought flowers. It was kind of one of those, I love these flowers. If you want them, get them, you know, like kind of that kind of thing. Um, yeah, some of the romance, I think, has gone just a little bit. Um, so, yes, we have two books to cover to finish the Old Testament. Now, last week, let's just do a little recap last two weeks ago when I was here. Here's what we looked at. Let me turn this thing on. There we go. We looked at this book, the book of Haggai. You can remember it from the cartoon because you have this guy hugging an eye, hugging an eye, Haggai. And in the background, you see these kind of charred building pieces. That's because Haggai, the theme of it was rebuilding the temple. And he was part of the second, the first wave, actually. No, the second wave that went back to Jerusalem after being exiled in Babylon. And so this is the book we talked about was, was the book of Haggai. Uh, let's, a little bit about the prophet, just give you a little bit about the prophet. The prophet, uh, we don't know a whole lot about him, uh, but he was one of the first, pro the only prophet, that we have that doesn't talk about judgment, which is kind of refreshing when you've been studying the old, the, the minor prophets, and it's all about judgment. To get to a prophet that doesn't talk about judgment, that's really, really refreshing. Uh, and he prophesied for only four months. Most of them prophesied for years and years, just four months. And that's another 
kind of interesting thing about him. The circumstances, if you'll remember, they came back from exile. They'd been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They come back to Jerusalem after the king of Persia releases them and says, you, anybody that wants to go back can go back. They go back. Jerusalem's in a shambles. It's tore down. It's burnt. It's charred. The temple was destroyed. And there was really nothing left. And their first job was to rebuild the temple. And I find that interesting. I, I wonder sometimes if you and I would do the same thing because sometimes our first job was to build the walls, build our own homes, you know, build those kind of things. But the first job was to rebuild the temple, which is a lesson to us that anytime you want to rebuild your life, you start with God and then work outward. You don't start with this stuff out here. And when I get all that stuff right, then I'll start working on my spiritual life. No, you start with your spiritual life first and work your way out. And so... This group started off with great zeal, and then they started procrastinating. The work was hard. It was way more difficult than they thought it would be, and so that caused them to procrastinate. Uh, they got distracted. They got distracted with their own homes and building their own stuff, and then once you get distracted with that, you just kind of let other things go. They just got distracted, and so they had not been building the temple. They've been building everything else but the temple. And so Haggai came, comes back and starts encouraging them to get back on track, to get back and start building the temple because they had abandoned it. He basically tells them you have to stop procrastinating. It was kind of a spiritual procrastination. There are some spiritual things you need to build in Jerusalem, and you're not doing it. You're procrastinating spiritually, which is something that's really, really easy for all of us to do is to procrastinate spiritually. We, we just do it all the time. And so I gave you a short outline for the book that when you're procrastinating spiritually, here are the two things you need to do. You've got to fix your priorities because usually we've got priorities in front of God. We've got something that we've placed ahead of God, in front of God, higher than God, and we've got to fix those priorities first because if you don't, you never will stop procrastinating. And uh, then you've got to focus on God's presence. And we all... We all procrastinate. I am the king. I put out a Facebook video. Some of you may have seen it. I remember being in grad school, and I had finals coming up, and they were make-or-break finals. It was, uh, I mean, they were, they were like make-or-break finals. I had to study. And so I remember coming home one night thinking, okay, I'm going to hit the books. I'm going to study for these finals. But that was also the same night my family decided they'd start a jigsaw puzzle. And I am a sucker for a jigsaw puzzle. And so... Later on that evening, rather early that morning, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm still working a jigsaw puzzle. Hadn't cracked the first book. I was a king of procrastination. So we all do this in, in lots of areas of our lives, but spiritually is where it really happens for us. And so we went through the book of Haggai. We talked about how he was encouraging the rebuild. We came away with these takeaways, and I'm going to rush through these takeaways really quickly, and then we will get to the next book. There it is. First of all, your choices matter. What you choose to do matters. You know, the people had chosen to work on their own homes rather than on the temple. Our choices matter. And even the small choices matter. My choice to even put the first piece in the jigsaw puzzle mattered because that's all it took. Your choices matter. Your present situation can be both a revelation and a result of your choices and your priorities. That one stings a little bit. 
But when you look at where you're at, that is the result of a lot of your choices and your priorities, but it also reveals your choices and your priorities. Uh, you know, if, if, if you drive a Maserati and your house is falling down around your ears, that's evidence of your choices and your priorities. You know, it... I won't give any more examples because I'm sure I'll offend somebody, so let's not do that. But, but take a look at your life. And that will show you kind of the result and the evidence of your priorities. Any priority you put ahead of God is actually a liability. You know, if God is not your priority and you have something else that's your priority, it will be a liability. I was studying in scriptures this morning and... Uh, and it dawned on me that everything that makes our life easier also makes our life harder. I mean, let that sink in. Anything that makes your life easier will make your life harder. For instance, a brand new house. It's bigger. You've got more room. It just makes life easier for you. But it makes it harder because there's more upkeep. And the mortgage payment is higher. And there's more things to take care of. You know, anything that makes our life easier ends up making our life harder. And so this is kind of that. Anything you put ahead of God, it may seem like a priority, but it's actually going to be a liability for you. Realigning your priorities can revive your productivity. Sometimes we get so bogged down in stuff, we just need to... I'm kind of the guy. Here's, here's my organizational structure on my desk. If I don't know what to do with it, I pile it on my desk in piles. And then if I wait long enough and it stacks up and I have to clean it, most of the stuff is out of date, can't do anything with it anyway, so I throw it away, right? You know? But if I change that structure, if I change my priorities, then I become more productive. And uh, that's true spiritually, it's true occupationally, it's true in your life. Much of our mood is determined by our focus. So it's possible that some of the discouragement and depression could be relieved by adjusting our focus. You know, I preached this with a vengeance two weeks ago when we were in here. I swear to you, Thursday morning, I blew that out of the water. Thursday morning, I completely did the opposite of everything I taught right here. And uh, one thing happened, wrecked my day, that's all I could focus on, wrecked my mood, the whole nine yards, and God reminded me of it. That's all I can say. This one, this is the last takeaway, and we'll get into the next book. God's power and presence can take something that doesn't seem that great and make it amazing. Remember, one of the problems with them rebuilding the temple is they were grieving over the fact that this temple, in comparison to Solomon's temple, was really nothing. They kept thinking about the glory of Solomon's temple, and so they couldn't really get invested in this. But the point is, it's not the temple, it's who's in the temple. It's not the brick and mortar, it's the person the brick and mortar represents. And when that person is there, he can do amazing things. And if you take a New Testament look at this, you and I are the temple. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, you and I, we are the temple. And speaking for myself, I'm not much. So anything that happens good has to happen 
from the person who lives in the temple, not from me. So when God is present, when God is there, he can turn something that doesn't seem that great and make it into something amazing. All right, let's take this next book then, because we've got a lot to cover in this next book, and I need to finish this book this evening. So here's the next book. This will remind you of the book. This is a Z that's crying. Z crying. Zechariah. Zechariah. It's a stretch, but it'll help you remember it. Okay? And uh, you can see in the background this cross. Because the book of Zechariah points to the coming Messiah. The future Messiah. This is the theme of Zechariah. Pointing to the future Messiah. Uh, This is not an easy book. Let me just say that up front. Uh, This is kind of a tough book. Let's talk about the prophet first. We'll look at these. We'll look at the prophet. We'll look at the book. We'll look at the context. Then I'll give you an outline. Then we'll kind of work our way through the book. Okay, so the prophet. The prophet we know from verse 1 is the grandson of Edo. The grandson of Edo. And if you look, you can find him referenced in Nehemiah 12.4. He's one of the exiles that came back in the first wave. There were two waves of exiles that came back. And he came back in the first wave. And Zechariah is his grandson. And Edo was a priest. We know that from text. And so it's very probable, we don't know a whole lot about Zechariah, but it's very probable that he probably was in the priestly line too. If his dad was a priest, and if his grandfather was a priest, he probably wound up being a priest also. Uh, he's a contemporary of Haggai, the book we just studied, the prophet we just studied. Now keep your finger there and go to Ezra. Turn left and go past Psalms and past Esther and Nehemiah. Go to Ezra and look at Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5 and starting in verse 1 says this. Now the prophets, plural, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So, These two are prophets, prophesying pretty much at the same time. Although Haggai only prophesied four months, Zechariah prophesies two years. But they're there at the same time, and they're prophesying the same thing. Encouragement to build the temple. Encouragement to build back the spiritual center of the known world at that time, being Jerusalem. And, And so... Same mission. They approach this encouragement a little bit differently, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at the book. This book is difficult. It's difficult to interpret. I'm just telling you right up front. Uh, There's several reasons why it's difficult to interpret. The chronology of this book is all jumbled up. Now, I've told you before that, that the Hebrew culture didn't focus as much on a linear chronology the way we do. I mean, we want, when we get a history book, we want to see it start here and then each succeeding event, and we take it in order of time. Hebrews did not do that as much. They were interested in the concepts and the lessons. And, and so in this book, the chronology is kind of jumbled up. Sometimes you're talking about Zechariah's time, and then sometimes you're talking about 
in the future when the Messiah comes. And then sometimes it's talking about the distant future when the Messiah returns. And sometimes it's hard to tell where one of those starts and stops and the other one starts and stops. So that makes the book a little bit difficult. Also makes the book difficult is the fact that there are about eight to nine visions or dreams in this book. And, and as we found out when we study Ezekiel and some of the other prophets, the visions and dreams can be kind of hard to interpret. They probably had they were probably way easier for them to decipher in their day and time than they are for us. Uh, but, it, but it is a lot of symbolism and a lot of picturesque messages, and so it can make the book a little difficult to interpret also. Uh, but the interesting thing about this book is it has more to say about the Messiah and the coming of Jesus than any other book of prophecy. It really does. It has a lot of foretelling about Jesus, both when he comes the first time and when he comes the second time. Uh, Zacharias sees Jesus as the wounded king. He sees Jesus as the shepherd. He sees Jesus as the one from whom all creation is waiting. He has these, these great images and, and prophecies of Jesus, and we're going to see some of those this evening. All right, now let's get to the context. The context is still the same context it was with Haggai. The people are back in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's pretty much dismantled. All they had pretty much done on the temple was build a foundation. So there was just tons of hard work to do. And the people were tired, and they were discouraged, and they were scared because their enemies still lived all around them. And with no walled city to kind of keep you safe, you're kind of sitting ducks. And so it, it, they were very anxious and very tired and very frustrated and wanted to give up. Anybody ever been there before? You know, this is one reason why this book is so good for us. Uh, they were just demoralized. So let me give you an outline. Here's the outline we're going to use for the book. The book has a challenge in it. And then it has these series of visions, and then it has the messianic kingdom. It talks about the messianic kingdom. So, as always, you can look in commentaries. You can find people outlining books in a million different ways. And I just try to keep our outlines as simple as possible. So, it starts with this vision, kind of an introduction to the book. So, let's look at that. If you've got Zechariah open, look at chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the eighth month... In the second year of Darius, Darius was the king of Persia who took over Babylon and then let the people go back. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. This is key here if you underline. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my word and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented. And said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So 
basically, here's what's happening in the challenge. He's basically, got, the prophet is saying, or God is saying through the prophet Zechariah, remember your forefathers. Remember the sins and the failures of your forefathers. Who was it that said, if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it? This is kind of what the prophet is saying. And, and repent of those sins. So remember them and repent of them and return to God. I mean, that's a good message. That'll preach. Three points. It's got all kinds of alliterations. They're all ours. Remember, repent, and return. This is what we're all called to do. No matter where you're at, you may not be rebuilding a temple, but all of us can look at our life and are in the area of life where we need to remember how we got here and how we should not have gotten here and repent of that and return to God. That is just basic 101 relationship with God. And so this is the challenge that he starts off with is remember the sins of your ancestors. You repent of those same sins and you return to me. So now let's get into the vision part of it. These visions are, are again, they're interesting, they're difficult, they're strange, they're bizarre at times. Uh, but this is how God would communicate with his people. And, and it's still not uncommon in Middle Eastern countries to have God communicate with people in dreams because that's the currency. You know, God, I, I believe God speaks to us in, in ways that we will get. He's not interested in hiding anything from us. And so if it takes something to get our attention, he will use that. And, and I think he's God. He gets to do that if he wants to. We don't get to tell him how he does things. Now, this is predominantly the way he speaks to us. And he can get our attention a whole lot better if we're in here than if we're not in here. But God was speaking to Zechariah and thus through Zechariah to the people through these dreams. Uh, so the visions are constructed like bookends. Don't get wigged out by this, but, but here's kind of how the visions are constructed. There's eight of them, and then kind of a summary. And so the first one and the eighth one are talking about peace. And then the second one and the seventh one talk about purging sin. The third one and the sixth one talk about the new Jerusalem. And the fourth and the fifth one are talking about the messianic kingdom. Now, there's a line in the middle of those, and, and it doesn't shake out this way as, as neatly as you would want it to. But predominantly, one through four is more talking about Zachariah's time, and the latter is talking about future times. And they, they overlap some. It's not that neat and clean. But it's interesting the way these visions are, are constructed and laid out in the book. So we're going to look at, let's, let's look at the, the ones on peace. Look at ver, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man. See, I saw in the night. This is the dream. Behold, a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, were red sorrel and white horses. And then I said, 
What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? And the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, and thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. And so God is basically, we'll stop here for just a second. Basically, it's like, how long are you going to keep us in the cold, God? How long are you going to punish us? How long are you going to, and, and God comes back and says, look, I want you to know I'm jealous for you. I want you to know I care about you. I want you to know that I'm going to bring you back. And yes, I punished you, but it says I punished you for a little bit. And what he's saying is the nations that he used to punish them, Assyria, Babylon, they took it further. And so God's going to bring back and, and, and balance the scales on them is what he's saying. Uh, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with my mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord shall again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So this vision is about God bringing peace and prosperity back to them. Bringing them out of exile, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, putting them back in a place of peace and prosperity. Now, if you go to chapter 6, the bookend, if you go to chapter 6, it kind of says the same type of thing, but it says it with regards to a more future time. So go to chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Okay? Hmm? No, that's the vision. That's visions 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Those are, yeah, it's, it kind of confused me when I was putting it together, but I didn't know a, an easier way to do this. So vision 8 starts in chapter 6, verse 1. Makes, have I lost anybody yet? I'll keep trying, I promise. 6, verse 1. Again, I lift my eyes and saw and behold four chariots. Okay, we're back to horses and chariots again. These horses and chariots are, are kind of like patrolling the earth, if you will. Four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, more red horses. And the second, black horses. And the third, white horses. And the fourth chariot, dappled horses. And all of them strong. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me and said, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And the chariots with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them. And then the dappled ones towards the south country. And then the strong horses came out. They were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. Those who they, so they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, behold, 
those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So again, it's another message of peace. This peace is maintained by these patrolmen, if you will. But this is, this is a, more of a future vision. So these are the bookends, and these are how these eight visions start. Let's look at the second and seventh vision, the one about purging sins. Look at, uh, look at chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse, let's see, where do I want to go with this? Verse 18. Is that right? Yeah, chapter... No, I think that's 2, verse 18. Hang on just a minute. Let me make sure I'm not leading you astray. Ah, 118, excuse me. I'd flipped too many pages. I was back in Haggai, and it was not making sense to me. All right, chapter 1, verse 18. Here is the second theme of visions, the purging of sin. Look at verse 18, chapter 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Horns in the Bible also refer, often refer to power, kingdoms, power. And so these are the ones that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lift up their horns against the land of Judah and scatter it. In other words, you have these four horns that come and they scatter my people. Now I'm going to scatter them. I'm going to, those four horns purged you, if you will, of your sin. Now I'm going to deal with their sin. All right? And then the matching vision, if you look at Chapter 5, verse 5. I know this is confusing, but this whole book is confusing. This was the only way I could kind of figure out how to, to lump it in for you. Chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what it is that I'm, is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. Ladies, does it bother you that wickedness is portrayed as female? Just asking, just wondered. And he thrust her back in the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of stork. Told you it was weird. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. And this is a, kind of a symbolic way of God saying, I'm pulling the wickedness out of your land and I'm sending it back where it belongs. Okay, so both of these visions talk about kind of purging out the sin. All right? So let's go on to the second, the third theme, the new Jerusalem. 
The third theme of the New Jerusalem. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel. I'm wrong. Chapter. Excuse me. I flipped over and grabbed two pages. I'm back in Haggai. God wants me in Haggai this evening for some reason. All right. Let's try this again. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. That sounds better. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. And said to him, run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Come out of exile, basically. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Isn't that interesting? The people that God sends into exile in Babylon are the apple of his eye. Isn't it interesting that if God allows discipline to come upon us, we think he doesn't like us? It's hard to believe that we're the apple of his eye if he's letting something bad happen to us. But the God who sends them to Babylon says, you're the apple of my eye. Verse 9, behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for all who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord shall inherit Judah as a portion, as his portion in the holy nation. And I will again choose Jerusalem. So, so basically he's saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a new Jerusalem. Yes, you've been in exile. Yes, you've come back. Everything is, is destroyed. But I'm going to build you a new Jerusalem. I'm going to be back in the center of Jerusalem like I used to be. So he's talking a more kind of a present day. But now, if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, again, I lift my eyes and saw and behold a flying scroll. And it gets kind of weird here. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out accordingly to, according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side. And I will send out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and be consumed and, and consume it, both timber and and stone. He's basically saying, I'm renovating. I'm rebuilding. 
I'm rebuilding a place for me. And, and I like the fact that when God rebuilds a place for him, he includes us. So, again, it's, it's cryptic in places, but, but this is how this works. Let me, let's go over the last one, the Messianic kingdom. Make sure we have time to finish. The Messianic kingdom. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Remember the word Satan. We've talked about this before in the book of Job. The word Satan means the accuser. That in Old Testament, Satan was not quite as well defined as we have him in the New Testament. And he was seen almost as this kind of heavenly DA, and his purpose was to keep pointing out flaws and keep accusing. And so... Satan standing at Joshua, the angel's right hand, to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Talking about his people. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with a filthy garment. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garment from him. And to him, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, he says. And I said, Let them, be, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk, in big word, if, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This is, the, this is the messianic portion of this. I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave in its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under the, his vine and hinder his fig tree. In other words, the, the Messiah is going to make things right. You hear the references to the branch, the references to the stone. Jesus is often referred to as the branch from the, from the line of David, the cornerstone. Okay? Now, look at chapter 4, verse 1. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep, and said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each lamp, and they are on top of it. Verse 3, And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. 
Now, Zerubbabel was one of those that came back in the first wave to start rebuilding. This is the word to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let me see if I can decipher this a little bit. The lamps, their lamps in those days were fueled by olive oil. And so you'd pour a little olive oil in, it'd last you a little bit, and that's, that was the lamp. This picture, this dream that he has is of this lamp, this elaborate lamp, but it's fed by two olive trees, which tells you that the supply is endless. And it also tells you that God provides the supply. That's why this verse is here, not by might, nor by power, or, or in other words, not by your might or by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he said, bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hand shall also complete it. But remember, it's not by might or by power. It's by God's Spirit. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall say, see the plumb line. Here's the plumb line again. We've already mentioned it. In the hands of Zerubbabel. Okay, we'll stop right there so we can finish this book. But, but these are these images, these visions that he has. And they're, granted, they're kind of hard for us to understand, and I'm not sure we all get all of it, but you can get the general theme here. And look at the progression of the themes. Peace comes from purging sin, from building a new habitation for God, for letting the Messiah rule. This is how peace comes. And these are the themes of the vision. And then God uses chapter 7 and chapter 8 to kind of summarize his intent. So look at chapter 7. Look at verse 8 of chapter 7. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and these words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left, the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to or fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. All right, now look at chapter 8, verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion. So he says, This is what I did, and this is why I did it. I called and I called and I called and they wouldn't listen and not only would they not listen, they refused to listen in turn. So this is what I let happen. But he doesn't stop there. 
He says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Also look at verse 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, their faithfulness and in righteousness. In faithfulness and in righteousness. So this is God saying, remember the context again, they're rebuilding this destroyed city, and they're tired, and they're demoralized. And God's saying, look, I know what happened to you. I was there, and this is why it happened. But here's where it goes from here. So take heart. It's not there yet, but here's where it's going. I'm telling you where I'm taking this. So take heart, be encouraged, put your shoulder back to the wheel because it's going to be okay. This is how God does this. All right, so, so that is the visions. Now let's finish up with this Messianic kingdom portion and then we'll do some takeaways and we'll finish this book. as kind of a skim flyover, if you will. The Messianic kingdom... Chapters 9 through 14, there are some of the most poignant and pointed references to Jesus, first and second coming, that you will find in the Old Testament. There are some wonderful references to him here. Look at chapter 9. We'll just hit a few of them. Chapter 9, look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar? Hold your finger there and go to John 12. John chapter 12. Okay, look at John 12, look at verse 15. Well, look, let's back up. Let's go to verse 12, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is why we celebrate Palm Sunday. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And here it comes from Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. A direct reference to a historical fact that would happen some 400, 500 years later. It's a reference to the Messiah, the king, Jesus. All right, let's look at another one. Look at chapter, look at chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. And he will pour out... On the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. As they look on him whom they have pierced. Now, hold your finger there and go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Look at 
My next Bible is going to have fatter pages. John chapter 19. Look at verse, uh, starting verse 36. For these things took place, that Scripture might be fulfilled. No one of his bones were broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Again, another very, very specific reference to Jesus, just to a historical fact about Jesus. Okay, I'll give you a couple more and then we'll finish up. Look at uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Look at Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 26. And I keep taking you to the New Testament because I, I want you to see how pointed and precise these references to the Messiah are and the fact that they're referenced to Jesus. Matthew 26. Look at verse 31. Start in verse 30. After the Last Supper, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So, Old Testament, New Testament, walking in lockstep, because they're all talking to, about Jesus and pointing to Jesus. And, uh, and then he projects even further into the future of Jesus' second coming. And, and we can't get into that this evening, but if you look at chapter 14, well... We will do it. Chapter 14, look at verse 4 of Zechariah 14, 4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half shall move southward. It's a reference to Jesus' second coming. Look at verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. Look at verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all of the earth. These are all references to the second coming of Christ. Again, very powerful, very pointed references. Way, way in the future. Or way in the past, going way into the future. So, so this is the book of Zechariah. We've kind of skimmed through it. I know we have, and it's a tough book. It's probably one of the toughest ones we've looked at. It's a strange, it's a difficult book. It begins by urging exiles to stay focused on God, to, to repent and return to him. And then it moves on to talking about a catalog of these strange dreams and visions, referring to what God is doing in Zechariah's time, what he's going to do in the future. Then it finally gives us some strong pictures of Jesus. And it's a book that speaks to us today. Why? Because today, our way is tough. Our way is difficult. There are times when we just want to quit. We don't want to keep pressing on. We'd just rather quit. But Zachary reminds us that there's a day coming, that if we can stay focused on that day that's coming, 
then everything, that day when everything is made right and all of our trials are settled, then it makes us easier to push on now when it's difficult. And so this is kind of what Zechariah tells us. Let's do some takeaways before we run out of time. Everyone needs encouragement. That may not seem like a very spiritual takeaway for you, but it is very true. Every one of us needs encouragement. You know how you know if somebody needs encouragement? Ask yourself, are they breathing? If they're breathing, they need encouragement. And, And as a counselor, wives, your husband needs more encouragement than you think he does. He needs more encouragement than you want to give him. We act like we have it all together. We act like we don't need anything. But we're just little boys at heart. And if you'll pat us on the head and tell us what a great job we're doing, we'll rise to the occasion. But it's not just husbands. We all need that. We do that for children. I mean, they can make a mess and we're praising them for something. We stop doing that for adults. Everybody needs encouragement. The, the purpose of Haggai and Zechariah was encouragement. To encourage his people. And so you may look around and think somebody around here has got it all together. They don't. I'm just telling you, no one has it all together. All of us wrestle with something. All of us struggle with something. All of us get tired. And we all need encouragement. It's just a simple takeaway. Another takeaway. God will return to us if we return to him. If we move This way, he will move this way. But he won't force you. And sometimes when I wonder, where is God at? He's waiting for me to move towards him. That's where he's at. And you see that really clear in the very first verses of Zechariah. Anything done for God must be done by God through his spirit. If you do something for God and it's just you, it don't count. Because it won't last. But if you let God do something through you, then it takes on a whole other dynamic. And it's really easy for us to work for God. But God wants to work through us, not us work for him. Because we don't... Act. I'm the guy that gets myself in most of my problems and predicaments. So what makes me think I'm going to get myself out? God wants to work through us, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If you've got financial problems, you're not going to get out of those just by being frugal. You're going to get out of those through the spirit of God working in you. Same way with marriage problems or any other problem. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God has to work through us. And the last one, everything hinges on Jesus, his work of salvation with his first coming and his work of judgment with his second coming. It all hinges on him. We get to go along for the ride. Why? I have no idea. I ask myself that a lot of times, almost every day coming to work. God, why do I get to do this? Because I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't even deserve the least of your blessings. So why do you keep to do this? Because everything comes through Jesus and everything comes for Jesus and everything is by him. And it all hinges on him. I mean, that's, you see this in Zechariah probably more closely than you do anywhere in the Old Testament. 
It's, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him. All right, any other takeaways you can think of before we close this book of Zechariah? It's not been one of the easier books we've worked through. I've either wowed you or bored you or put you to sleep. One of the two. Three. What are you taking away from this book as quickly as we went over it? Yes. Say again. Keep your eye on the prize. Good, good word. Good word. Because, you know, when you keep your eye on Jesus, everything seems to get a little lighter and easier. Anybody else taking something away? Besides a headache. All right, we have one more book in the Old Testament. Then we'll start studying the Apocrypha. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. Just teasing. Uh, but Malachi, Malachi is going to be a good book for us. We're going to have some fun with that. We're going to try to finish it in one night, but it's going to be good. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the book of Zechariah. It is a difficult book, Father. It's not always as clear and as systematic and as bullet point as we would like for it to be. But it has much to say to us. Much to say to us because we do get discouraged just like the exiles, the returning exiles were. I mean, it's hard. Things are tough. It would just be easier not to do it sometimes, to do something else sometimes. It's, and you t tell us, as the brother said, Keep our eyes on the prize. Remember who we are. Remember whose we are. Remember what you're going to do. Remember how you're going to do it. Remember that there is more to life than this life. This is what Zechariah reminded the people of, and it's what he reminds us of. So, Father, forgive us for being so easily sidetracked, so easily discouraged so easily defeated and deflated. For we are children of the King. And nothing is withheld from us. And you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And, and in the end, you're going to roll this whole thing up like a scroll. And what do we have to be discouraged about? So show us, Father, how to walk in the encouragement of Zechariah this week. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.